0: His daughter, Cleopatra, is given to the king's son. They're both young, that's why she's called the daughter of women. And according to verse 17, Antiochus expected his daughter to take a stand for him and to be on his side. He expected her to be a spy of sorts, that she would favor her daddy. But he failed to reckon the power of love, and his plan failed.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible-teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in the section of Daniel chapter 11, which deals with the 70th week prophecy of Daniel, a seven-year period that follows the church age and that will be marked by the tribulation period. As we pick up, Pastor Brogy talks about the split that took place in the Greek kingdom after Alexander the Great committed suicide. We see that the section described as the northern kingdom is Syria, and the southern half is Egypt, and they are ruled by the generals that formerly served under Alexander.
0: Now there's a lot of different kings of the north and kings of the south that are mentioned all the way through this chapter, but just think in terms of the big terms, north and south, Syria and Egypt. So the northern Seleucid kings hate the southern Ptolemy kings, and for years they're going to fight one against the other. And why does he include these two points of the four generals? Because sandwiched between Syria and Egypt is this little patch of land we call Israel. A few weeks ago I got picked up at Tel Aviv to take me to the hotel as I arrived a day earlier, and I'm talking to this Jewish cab driver, he says, I don't understand it. He said, we've got these nations all around us, and we're just... He takes his little finger. We're just this little piece of land on the hand, just the tip of my finger, and they're all against us. And not only, is it, not only are they against us, it seems like the whole world is against us. Why is it? And of course, I had an answer for him. God gives an answer. But we're going to see this, this turmoil that is going back and forth. And God is going to warn Israel in this passage. He's going to pre-write history that they have some very difficult years ahead. But he's reminding of that because he's not forsaking his people. And so beginning in verse 5, the prophecy focuses on two of the four generals. And it focuses on the Seleucids and the Antiochuses who will make up the northern kings and the Ptolemies who will make up the southern kings. And what we find in these 200 years of history is prophecy being pre-written. That's what prophecy is. It is history pre-written. Look at verse 5. We'll hit some of the most important points. Then the king of the south will grow strong Along with one of his princes who will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. These verses bring us to about 250 BC when the king of Egypt, the king of the south, along with one of his princes, grows stronger than the king of the north, the king of Syria. And so, out of a position of strength, this king attempts to make a peace treaty by using an Egyptian princess. We read of it here in verse 6. After some years, they will form an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power nor will he remain with his power, but she will be given up along with those who brought her in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. So according to verse 6, the king of the south's daughter was given to the king of the north to make a peace treaty. You see, one of the ways you handle disagreements in that day, if you happen in this case to be the king of the south and you're not getting along with the king of the north then you could handle the problem in one of two ways. You could either fight, you could attack, or a second option is you'd give one of your relatives in marriage to the king that's opposing you so that they, quote-unquote, become family and you have a peace treaty. Remember, Solomon lived during the time of great peace. He had a thousand wives. They weren't in his bedroom every night. Most of those were just wives of convenience, political arrangements to make peace with surrounding kings. So if you had a pretty daughter, you could offer her to the opposition. You could say, if you will marry my daughter, maybe we can solve this problem. And that's precisely what happened as prophesied. And so to form this alliance between these two warring families, Ptolemy, Philippus, the king of Egypt, the king of the south, gave his daughter Berenice to the king of the north, the king of Syria. Look at verse 6, after some years they will form an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south will come to the king of the north to carry out a peaceful arrangement. Now remember, Daniel is writing this 500 years before Christ. And this all happens about 250 years before Christ. And history records that Antiochus, the king of Syria, the king of the north, gave, uh, took Berenice, the king of the south, in marriage of course, to make that happen, this guy Antiochus Theos, who we're going to look at in just a moment, he's already married, so he has to divorce his wife Laodice in order to marry this girl. It has kind of a modern ring to it. And after two years, this guy Ptolemy Philadelphus, the daddy who gives his daughter Berendice in marriage to this guy Antiochus Theos, he dies. And so Antiochus Theos then divorces Ptolemy's daughter, Berenice, and he goes back to his first wife, Laodice. His first wife, not trusting the fickle behavior of her man, poisons Antiochus Theus, and then he orders the death of Berenice and her son, and she puts her own son on the throne. Verse 6 prophesies that this alliance will not work. Let me keep reading. But she will not retain her position of power. That speaks of Berenice because dead women don't have power. Nor will he remain with his power. That's Antiochus Theus because he was poisoned. But she will be given up along with those who brought her in. Her dad, told me, who's dead too. And the one who sighed her as well as the one who supported her in those times. Now don't miss the flow of thought. Get the big picture at least. God prophesies first about the Egyptian king, the king of the south in verse 5. Then the Egyptian princess here in verse 6. And then this Egyptian revolt in verses 7 through 9. Look at verse 7. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place, and he will come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he will deal with them and display great strength. He's describing one of Berenice's, the Egyptian princess's, descendants. And history records that another Ptolemy, a, ta- a Ptolemy Urijetus, the brother of Berenice, is outraged at what they did to her sister. So he comes with the Egyptian army and he captures Syria. He displays great strength by entering the fortress uh, there in the port of Antioch. And he put Laodice to death. La- Laodice to death. Now look at verse 8. He's not done. Also, their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, he will take into captivity into Egypt. In an Egyptian hieroglyphics, along with other sources, we read in the Annals of Egyptian history that this particular Ptolemy brought back 40,000 talents of silver, some 4,000 talents of gold, and some 2,500 Idols, just as God prophesied. And so, with his thirst for revenge satisfied, Ptolemy the Seleucus, the king of the south, on the throne signed a truce which lasted 10 years. Verse 8, and on his part, and he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. Then we read in verse 9, then the latter, Seleucus, the king of the north, mentioned at the end of verse 8, will retain the realm of the king of the south, but he will return to his own land. So Seleucus now wanted revenge, and he makes a foolhardy attempt to invade Egypt. And he came into the realm of Egyptian waters with a, a whole fleet of ships, but he gets lost in a storm. Now I hope you're following me. This is the world of Alexander the Great. You still there? You're starting to glaze over. I can see. I'm beginning to lose you. But his great empire. Remember, Alexander the Great is divided into four pieces. The four generals. Syria and Egypt occupy center stage because Israel is wedged between those two countries. By the way, what I just did for you, and all the names I gave you, is recorded in history. When you go to seminary, when I was at Dallas Seminary, not only do you take Old Testament survey courses, but sometimes you take courses on specific books. And I was privileged to take a course under Dr. Dwight Pentecost, who taught until about a year ago. When he died at the age of 99, he was one of the great prophetic scholars alive in the last hundred years. And one of the things you typically do if you take a course in the book of Daniel is you have to go through Daniel 11, 1 to 35, and all the students will whine and cry and fuss, and you have to document from secular history everything I just said, and it's all documentable. In fact, you might want to even read the books of First and Second Maccabees. Now, First and Second Maccabees were written between Malachi and Matthew, that 400 years of so-called silence. It's not silent at all because God spoke about it in Daniel 11. But those are books written between the Testament. They're not canonical. They're not part of the canon of Scripture. They're never quoted in the New Testament. Why? Because they're not viewed as inspired. But in the 1611 King James Bible, they were put in there between the Testaments. Why? Because as you read in the preface of the 1611 edition of the King James, they said, this records the history of the Jewish people during those 400 years. And while we do not believe they are inspired, we include them here. All the Catholics had a field day then. They said, you see, they put them in their Bible, we put them in our Bible. Now, the Catholics and the Orthodox believe they're inspired. They're not. They don't have the marks of inspiration, and I cover that carefully in my course in Bibliology. But in the 16:13 edition, they removed those books, but nonetheless, first and Second Maccabees gives a detailed description of what took place among other sources that you can read about that we are studying this morning. All right That's, Let's move now from the world of uh, Alexander the Greek to the Wars of Antiochus the Great, here in verses 10 through 20. Beginning in verse 10, we're introduced to another king. He is another king of the north, another king of Syria. He is known as Antiochus the Great. And verse 10 opens with his first campaign. Verse 10 begins, and his sons, which cause you to ask whose sons? The sons of Seleucus, the king of the north, just mentioned in verse 9, who tried to attack the king of the south but returned. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces. Now remember, when Alexander dies and his kingdom is divided, into four parts to his four generals. One is led by General Seleucid, the king of the north, the king of Assyria. Syria. And one day he's out on his horse and he falls off and he dies. And so he's succeeded as God prophesies by two sons, who under their separate rule will mobilize a great army. One of his sons is Seleucus the second. The other son is Alexander the Great, who becomes the focus of this prophecy, verse ten. His sons will mobilize and assemble a multitude of great forces, and one of them, Antiochus the Great, will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that they may again wage war up to this very fortress. And history concurs that, that Antiochus the Great came with a multitude of great forces, 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and he attacks Egypt. In fact, he comes right up to the fortress, the fortress there at Rafia. And the king of Egypt was not too happy. So we read in verse 11, the king of the south, the king of Egypt, will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. So the king of the Egypt, he has a big army, 73,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. Now Alexander learned when he conquered all the way to India, that elephants made great battering rams. And so they had 73 elephants. He took his army, and he went to fight against Antiochus the Great. Now, where is Israel? Sandwiched right between. Every time the king of the north came south, or the king of the south came north, they had to go across Israel. And Daniel's recording this because he recognizes that Israel cannot go unscathed. So Israel is wedged between these two warring neighbors. Verse 11, the king of the south will be enraged and go forth and fight with the king of the north. Then the latter, the king of the north, Antiochus the Great, will raise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given into the hand of the former. So Antiochus is going to lose the fight, the Bible prophesies, and the king of Egypt will take a great multitude of captives into his hand. Now stay with me, verse 12. When the multitude is carried away, his heart will be lifted up, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall, yet he will not prevail. So the king of Egypt gets very proud, and the Bible prophesies here in verse 12, his heart will be lifted up. Pride cometh before the fall. And so he marches away with a great multitude. History records he takes 10,000 Syrian prisoners. And before returning to Egypt in his pride, he stops in Jerusalem. The king of the south, that is the king of Egypt, demanded that he'd go into the most sacred part of the temple there on Mount Moriah, called the Holy of Holies. But as he attempts to go into the temple, history records that he struck down to the ground, and he could not move and could not speak. Frightened, he leaves, but he goes back brooding, humiliated, and he assumes that the Jewish people exercise some kind of magic on him. So when he gets home... Uh, He takes tens of thousands of Jews with him, and he demands, when when he's there in Jerusalem and they paralyze him, so to speak, he said, I can't believe you guys, he's so upset, he's brooding, he takes 10,000 Jews as prisoners, and he gets home and he demands that they worship his God. But the Jews, of course, refuse, and so they're martyred. 40,000 Jews are slaughtered, and he will cause tens of thousands to fall. But it's not over for the king of Egypt, because God prophesies in verse 12, he will not prevail. The king of the north, Antiochus the Great, will not let this defeat rest. So beginning in verse 13, we have his further campaign. Now try to stay with me. I know this is history, and I know this is difficult So he's there in Jerusalem, he's all upset, he broods. He doesn't take 10,000 from Israel. He goes back to Egypt where there's a big community of Jews. He said, worship my God, they refuse, and he slaughters them by the thousands. So we read now of his further campaign, verse 13. For the king of the north will again raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. So the king of the north renews this conflict again after an interval of some years, 13 to be precise. Verse 14, now in those times, many will arise against the king of the south. The violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they will fall down. So this unnamed angel tells Daniel that some of the Jewish people with a violent bent within them will become mercenary soldiers for Antiochus when he marched south towards Egypt. They no doubt reason that Antiochus could win and if they won with his help, they would have his favor. Look at verse 15. Then the king of the north, that's Antiochus, will come, cast up a sledge ramp and capture a well-fortified city and the forces of the south will not stand their ground not even their choicest troops, for there will be no strength to make them stand. So Antiochus has a decisive victory over Egypt, but notice what happens to the Jewish people in verse 16. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases, and no one will be able to withstand him. He will also stay for a time in the beautiful land, that's Israel, with destruction in his hand. He brings nothing but destruction in his hand. Verse 17 elaborates. He will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace, which he will put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. The daughter of women, my Hebrew Bible literally reads, the daughter of femininity which was a Hebristic term used to this day to describe a young Hebrew woman who's not old enough to be married and is under her mother's care and tutelage. He will give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or be on his side. Now, this is really interesting. Try to follow the vision given here to Daniel. In 195 BC, Antiochus the Great, this text says, comes with the power of his whole kingdom to invade Egypt. But he realized to invade Egypt, he would invite a war with Rome, which is a growing, burgeoning power at this point that Daniel wrote about uh, hundreds of years before that would come into power. And so he came in strength to negotiate, notice, bringing with him a proposal of peace. So he makes a treaty uh, with the Egyptian king, Ptolemy Epiphanes, And his daughter, Cleopatra, is given to the king's son. They're both young. That's why she's called the daughter of women. And according to verse 17, Antiochus expected his daughter to take a stand for him and to be on his side. He expected her to be a spy of sorts, that she would favor her daddy. But he failed to reckon the power of love, and his plan failed. Hey, uh, ladies, how would you like to be the daughter of a king like that? So the plan of Antiochus the Great backfires. And he didn't expect his daughter to fall in love with this young man. He expected her to be loyal to Egypt. But Antiochus is not true yet. So beyond his first campaign and beyond his further campaign, now we come to Antiochus's final campaign. Beginning in verse 18, then he will turn his face to the coastlands and capture many. So Antiochus comes with 300 ships, and he attacks Greece and Asia Minor to strengthen his position against the Egyptians. The Romans send a delegation warning him that he had no right because these were their lands for taxation purposes. So, we read, "...but a commander will put a stop to his scorn against him. Moreover, he will repay him for his scorn." The Romans are not going to take this sitting down. So they send a commander to crush Antiochus' his ar- his army. And Antiochus is forced to make a humiliating peace treaty with Rome and to give his son as a hostage as a guarantee for good behavior. He also is required to pay back Rome for the cost they incur in the war. You know, we as America go and we fight for these other countries that have billions of dollars in oil money, and we do it at your cost and my cost. And so now we are trillions of dollars in debt. And it's a law of God. You You cannot spend money you do not have. It's taught directly in the Scripture. And if you spend money you don't have... Someone will have to work for it. You see, the average American doesn't make $20 trillion, Who cares? Huh, what a joke. So what? It's a big so what. Because someone's going to have to work for that money, or they will devalue your money, as they've done in many countries of the world, and your dollar bills will become like wallpaper. So they want a repayment back. They want him to come up with the money, verse 19. So he will turn his face towards the fortresses of his own, la- of his own land. In other words, he, he heads home. And he goes home to a temple called the Temple of Bel. It's one of the people's most prized temple. And it's filled with millions of dollars of gold and silver. And he decides he's going to plunder it to pay the Roman tax. And the people revolt, and they end up killing this guy. But he will stumble and fall and be no more. In addition, verse 20, then in his place one will arise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. Israel is called the jewel of his kingdom. Antiochus is succeeded by his eldest son who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom. And who is this oppressor? The IRS. The new king has a tax collector. And his name is Heliodorus. And Heliodorus comes to get the needed funds. And so this time he comes to Israel. And instead of exacting more money out of the people because he had been squeezing them to death for money, he decides that he's going to go into the Jerusalem temple and steal all the gold and silver that's there. And in the process, he is given a dream telling him not to try. God sometimes speaks even to unbelievers in a dream. Pilate's wife was given a dream that this one was innocent. We've already seen a pagan king in this book have a dream from God. So with no money in hand, fearful to go into the Holy of Holies, into the whole temple and to plunder it, fearing the king's wrath, he poisons Antiochus' eldest son, and he dies just as God predicts in verse 20. Then in his place... One will arise, will ascend an oppressor through the jewel of the kingdom. Yet within a few days, he will be shattered, though not in anger nor in battle. Just like God said. All right, now, one more. I know I'm losing you fast. You're all glazing over. You don't even know where I am. You're going to forget all these names. But I don't want you to miss the big picture before we're done. There's the wickedness of Antiochus, the god. Antiochus theos. Theos. We get our word... Theology from it. It's the Greek word for God. I mean, you talk about a guy with an ego problem. What's your name? Antiochus the God. Antiochus the God Epiphanes. This king is poisoned and is replaced by Antiochus Epiphanes, another son who is often referred to as the Antichrist of the Old Testament. Why? Because he's a picture we're going to see, he is a foreshadowing of the coming Antichrist. Now, when we come to verse 36 next time, we're not going to be looking at a foreshadowing. We are going to be reading a prophecy of the actual Antichrist who will come in the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy. You don't want to miss it. Now, this king, who is a picture of the coming Antichrist, his career divides into five parts. First, let's think about Antiochus Epiphanes' contemptibility. We read in verse 21, In his place, a despicable person, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus Theos, will arise, on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, But he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. Now comes a new king, and he's described as a despicable person. And indeed he was. He's one of the cruelest kings the Syrians had ever known. He was unscrupulous. He had a savage temper, and he did some of the most despicable evil sins that I dare not even name. Now, the last time we saw Antiochus Epiphanes, he had been taken as a hostage by, his, by the Romans to ensure his father's good behavior. Well, Antiochus' uh, daddy was killed uh, for trying to plunder the temple of Bel, and so his son Seleucus comes to the throne. And when Seleucus comes to power, he wants to get his brother home. So Seleucus negotiates a deal with the Romans, giving them his own son, Demetrius, nice guy, in the place of Antiochus Epiphanes. And as on his way home from Rome, Antiochus Epiphanes learns that his oldest brother Seleucus had been poisoned none other than the tax collector Helodorus, who now claimed to be the king of Syria. And so Antiochus Epiphanes comes home to claim the throne for himself the throne that rightfully belonged to Demetrius, but he's being held hostage. Look at verse 21. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of kingship has not been conferred, but he will come in a time of tranquility and seize the kingdom by intrigue. And that's how Antiochus Epiphanes comes to power. The honor of kingship that did not belong to him, he comes quietly, he borrows some troops from a neighboring king, and he disposes of Heliodorius. And with no big battle and a time of tranquility and a time of peace, he steps onto the throne by intrigue.
1: The reason the book of Daniel is so controversial amongst theologians and historians is because of the accuracy of its prophecy. Ironically, some biblical scholars have more difficulty accepting the writings of Daniel than do historians. Next time, we'll continue our look at the fascinating prophecies of Daniel that were part of his fourth dream outlined in chapter 11. To listen again to today's message entitled, The People Who Know Their God, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program DAN17. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Brogy concludes his message to people who know their God as we search the Scriptures.